Okay, if you will turn this morning in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 5, we're going to begin our study of the Word of God this morning. We're going to pick up with um, where we left off in learning about Christ and His ministry on this earth, uh, His kingship and sovereign reign over all people and all parts of creation, all things, and... uh, We're going to read chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, a a lengthy passage this morning. It's all one story together, 21 through verse 43. So let's go ahead and read the text together, uh, and then we will begin to think about its implications for our heart and our lives. Before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray simply that you would help us to understand your word. You would help us to see what we are unable to see, to hear what we on our own are unable to hear, and to receive the truth that is found there. Lord, use your word to accomplish in us your purposes for redemption, reconciliation, for sanctification, and righteousness. May it inform our minds this morning and transform our hearts by your spirit, because our sinfulness prohibits us from getting it on our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, the word of the Lord says, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was not better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched me by who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him. And told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, And he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him, and he entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumai, which is translated little child, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was twelve years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. 
But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given to her to eat. Amen. Uh, Just an incredible story. And you may think that it's two stories. It is. Um, It's sort of this picture in picture, if you will, Uh, this uh, story within a story. And the question is always, why uh, are things structured the way they are? And there are great uh, there are there are great questions or mysteries about this text, and some people point to this text as being one of the greatest um, one of the greatest contradictions of the Bible that proves, in fact, that the Word of God is uh, errant, not inerrant, but that it has errors and that it cannot be trusted. And the reason for that is simply this: and when you turn over to Matthew's Gospel and you read the other accounts of this, there are some problems with reconciling it to this one. At least they are perceived to be major problems. I would encourage you that they really are not. And very briefly, I'm going to give you some of those. The first is the location. We're told right off the bat that this uh, they get in the boat. Remember, they were on the Sea of Galilee. The storm came up, and then they go over to the other side. He gets out on the land. He heals the guy with all the demons. And now they're back on the boat, and they've gone over back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Well, we know that it was not really by the seaside in the ministry of Christ where this account, this healing took place. Uh, where, where Jairus seeks Jesus out, but it's when he's at the dinner that we've already seen at the home of Matthew with the tax collectors and the uh, prostitutes and the other terrible people in society. So, so what do we make of that? Well, I would simply say that uh, Mark is speaking generally, not specifically to the location. Uh, and then you also need to realize that the, all of the gospel writers, they do not all, in fact all of them at some point, write out of chronological order. It's not intended to be a chronological history book, necessarily. You can decipher some chronology from it, and it is uh, historical in all the things that it says. It is true and real. But they structure things for specific reasons, and we've seen that already so far, where certain passages for Mark and the writing of this book, they come in certain places because he's interested not in giving us a history lesson, but in teaching us deep theology, it teaching us something about who God is, right? What's, what's the point of this book? It's to be introduced to the king, that King Jesus has come. What did he, who is he? What is he doing? Why is he here? And what did he bring, right? The king has come, and he's come bringing his kingdom. What does that kingdom look like? That's what we've been studying for the last several weeks is the nature of the kingdom. Now we've learned something about the nature of the king. So be, be mindful that we must honor the intention of the author. But it's not really a problem because in Matthew's accounting, it's a much more chronological, historical accounting of this. In Mark's, according to the testimony of Peter, it's not. It is given to us to teach us something about Jesus, and you're going to see that as we move through this text. It really has very little to do with the history or the chronology of it. It has to do with what happened and how these two stories, this picture in picture, how do they relate to each other? Why is there a story within a story? Well, for the same reason. Because it is a story with... A similar uh, point, but with great comparison to the story that it's inside of. And when you look at the two together as a whole, comparing and contrasting them, then you see what both of them together teach us that is substantial about the person and work of Jesus. So it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not really a problem. It's not really an issue of timing. The other is... Uh, that, that, that people look at Matthew's account where when he comes in, it says that Jairus came in and told him that his daughter was dead. And, and here it says that Jairus came in and told him that his daughter was about to die. Well, if you watched any of the football games this week, you may well have been in about the third quarter and said, well, it's over. Okay? I, I think in some sense, there is an understanding in all of language 
where we use finality when it is the inevitable conclusion. And I think that in some sense, when Jairus came to Jesus in Matthew's accounting, it was perfectly legitimate for him to say, my daughter's dead because the death was impending. It was imminent. She she was on death's door, so to speak. And the point is that apart from the miraculous working of God in the little girl's life, she would indeed die, probably before he could return with him, which is why he goes at great expense, as we will see. He goes and seeks out this man, Jesus, in a very controversial fashion to heal his daughter. So, listen, you can trust your Bibles. It's not really that big of a deal. But what I want us to then consider about these two stories together, first is the people and the stories, and there are two primarily. We will look at three, but the people and the stories. Then we're going to consider those people's problem, and then we're going to look at Jesus' response, right? And then in considering those three things, we're going to ask ourselves the question, why? Why does this happen? Why? Why? And, and what can we learn from it? So first, the people in the story. Well, the first person that we meet is Jairus. Uh, we read that they have crossed over on the other side. Uh, technically, they're at Matthew's house. Uh, not necessarily chronologically right here. He's speaking generally about where it was taking place over on the other side of the sea. Um, and one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, uh, He came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she might be healed, and she will live. Well, we have seen uh, Jesus' power over creation. We've seen his power over hurricanes. We've seen his power over religious leaders. We've seen his power over demonic spirits and possession and spiritual things. We've seen his ability and power to redeem sinners and forgive sins. We've seen power over sickness. And today, we're going to see sort of the conclusion to all of those, the greatest expression of power, at least from a human perspective, which is Jesus' power over death. And so Jairus comes with this imminent need because his daughter is dying. She's dead. She's good as dead. She is going to perish if he does not come. But look at what it tells us about him Uh, His person, behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came. So that he was a leader in one of the religious synagogues of the day, which meant several things. That in the religious community, he would have been a man of great reputation. So that he would have been known by many. He would have been considered a religious leader. He would have been a decision maker. He would have been a prominent authority in religious circles. But what that also meant in their day, unlike in ours, because I'm... uh, in some sense a religious leader in this little small circle, but it does not earn me on any level any sort of political or social influence. People out there don't care what I think. <laughs> you know, Some of you may not really care what I think. I don't know. I think most of you put some weight in it. But you see the point, in their day it was very different. By virtue of his being a religious leader and a ruler of the synagogue, he would have also been lumped in with the political and social rulers of the day. So that he would have been of great reputation religiously, he would also have been of great reputation socially and politically. What I want you to understand is this. He would have been very well known, and he would have been very well to do. He would have had plenty of money. He would not have been in need. He could have afforded the greatest doctors in all of the land and probably had been to them on many occasions and done all sorts of things to try to heal his daughter. There would have been great expense Uh, There would have been no expense spared to try to heal his daughter. Everybody would have known about the situation of his daughter, and everybody would have known about the attempts that he made to heal her or to have her healed. Listen, including the attempt 
by Jesus. Now you say, what difference does that make? Well, here's what I want you to see, is that this would have been a very costly, um, controversial way to do it. What did the religious leaders think about Jesus? This miracle worker who expressed these powers over demons and over creation and hurricanes, and that guy that claims to be God and be able to forgive sins, what did they think about it? The pressure had been ratcheted up to a whole new level, and they had been plotting with the Herodians, who they hated, what? To kill Jesus. What do you think that his peers would have thought about him seeking out Jesus? It would have been not good. He would have been ridiculed, he would have been laughed at, and he would have been shunned, this man of authority in this great position, politically, socially, and religiously, he would have been shunned by his peers because he sought out Jesus. And I just simply want you to see that this man uh, is the extreme opposite of the woman that you meet next. He was a man of power and prominence. He was well-known. He was well-to-do. And his situation, his circumstance, and the attempts made to remedy it would have been well-known, including his desire to go and to receive Blessing and healing to this girl from Jesus. So let's, so let's then consider the second person that we meet. We're told that a certain woman in verse 25, who had a flow of blood for over 12 years, had suffered many things from many physicians, so much that she had spent all that she had and was not any better, but rather continued to grow worse. She hears about Jesus, and she came behind him in the crowd. Notice she didn't come up in front of him. <laughs> she, she comes behind him in the crowd, And she touches his garment. And she said to herself, if I just could touch his clothes, I could be made well. Now let's let's compare her then to Jairus. Jairus comes making a serious request in imminent need. Well, this this woman comes with a pretty substantial request as well. I don't really know what was wrong with her. I'm not going to pretend to know. I'm not going to be able to explain it to you. Probably some sort of woman issue uh, that I don't understand. But she had some chronic uh, blood problem, hemorrhaging. For years and years and years and years. It is this long stint of suffering that she would have endured. And she hears about Jesus. Now here's the interesting thing. She might not have known anything about Jesus. Unlike Jairus who would have been very well known about Christ and his ministry and what he was doing. And even the people that hated him because of his claims. But he believed something about Jesus and sought him out. Well this lady, she, all she knows about Jesus is she's heard about all the wonderful things that he's done. That he's calling the storm of the sea, that Legion who was bound by all the chains, that he's been freed, that the, the, the guy with the, the bed, the lame, that was let down by his friends through the ceiling, was picked up his bed and walked out of that house that day. She had heard about all these wonderful things of Jesus, and so she had become to believe and to understand superstitiously that if I could just touch Jesus, I would be healed. If I could just touch the garment of his clothes. But notice what she probably didn't really want. She didn't really want anybody to know. Whereas Jairus would have been Everyone would have known about his seeking Jesus out, and everybody would have known when Jairus arrived at the place, and he would have been well-known. This lady, she can sneak up right behind Jesus and just touch him, receive healing, and head out on her way. She doesn't come up to him in any public fashion. Nobody would have seen her. Nobody would have cared that she was there, because also unlike Jairus, she was not well-to-do. She was not well-known. She was not well-off. What little money she did have, she had spent on trying to be made whole. She was left totally destitute. She was left totally hopeless. But like Jairus, there was no cure for her suffering. There was nothing that she or that any doctor could do to fix her problem. But she is, in many ways, the 
polar opposite of of Jairus, well-to-do, well-known, and she is totally destitute and nobody cares anything about her being there. But I think that at least to some degree, in the way that she approaches Jesus, she intends for it to stay that way. She comes up behind him. She's come to believe superstitiously that he's this fancy miracle worker and that if I can just reach out and touch him and just get a little bit of Jesus, then I can get what I need and I can be on my way. So it wasn't going to be public. There was going to be no interaction. And what I want you to see then is that they're both going to get a little more than, a little more than they bargained for. Okay, they're, they're both going to get more than they bargained for. So those are the people. Now their problems are different. And, and the only point I want to make to you about this, considering their problem, is the nature of their problem. Sure, we know that one had a flow of blood and we know that one's daughter was sick, but which one was more imminent? Uh, one, you know, which one was more acute, if you will? What was Jairus' need? In this story, it is very difficult not to feel sorry for Jairus, isn't it? And to wonder, Jesus, what in the world are you doing? Get the scene. Jairus seeks out Christ at great expense to himself and probably great ridicule by his peers, knowing that everybody's going to know, everybody's going to see, and that he's a religious leader. It may cost him his job. It may cost him his life. Who knows? And he seeks out Jesus because he believes that Jesus is the only one that can fix it. He approaches him in a public way, and, and he begs him, listen, my daughter is fixing to die. She is at the point of death, and if you don't come and heal her, she is not going to be healed. And he agrees. He says, okay, you know, let's head that direction. I will come and heal her. And then he gets touched by a woman who has had a problem for years and years and years, and it can wait a couple more hours, right? I mean, what, what's, what's going what's gonna to be the problem in eternity if she, if she bleeds for another few hours until he can go take care of the immediate problem and then come back and deal with her problem? And and he's in a throng of people, and she reaches out and touches his garment, and nobody knows she's there. She comes up behind him. She doesn't seem to have any interest in a public interaction with Jesus. She doesn't want anybody to know. She believes, in fact, superstitiously, I think, about what Jesus can do. And she just thinks, if I could just touch him and receive a little bit of what I need, then I can be on my way. And when she touches him, fascinating, it says that power left Jesus, that he, he knew that he had some power had left him in some way. Listen, I don't have any idea what that means. Okay? I don't know. I don't know what that felt like. Uh, neither does anybody else. But in some way, there are tons of people touching him. When she touches that of his clothing, something different happens, and he realizes it instantly. And on his way to meet this immediate pressing need of Jairus, who has come to him and sought him out for his blessing and his healing, crying out to him, In the midst of that, he stops, and he wants to know who touched him. And his disciples are just, they're just, it's ridiculous that he would do this. It it, it truly is. And his disciples, they're as confused as anybody. He says, who touched my clothes? But look in 31, his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you, and you say to us, who touched me? Do you get the urgency in their voice? They know Jairus' problem, that they are as confused as I am. Right, And then maybe as you are when you read this text, what do you mean who touched you? Tons of people are touching you. But more importantly, why are you concerned? What difference does it make? We are, we are in the ambulance headed to fix the immediate need, the pressing problem. And if we don't hurry, the little girl will be lost. Well, the interesting thing is he agrees to go with Jairus, but he, but he, makes, but he makes him wait. You know, he... It, he stops and he doesn't seem to care and he seems to be distracted and he seems to not really know what he's doing but he takes time for this woman now, now notice notice something else here 
in, in this comparison about the people and about their problem. And, and, and Jesus is responding to these two things. It would have been, a, it would have been a, an anomaly to have dealt with the needs of the destitute and of the poor and of the one who can't provide or give anything in return over the, over the one that's wealthy and well-known and has a place of social prominence. But, but listen, listen very carefully also. Jairus was a man, and the one with the bleeding problem was a woman. And, and it would have been unheard of to put a, a place of preeminence to the woman over against the man in their day. So, so what I want you to see is that Jesus is responding in a very confusing and peculiar way. Now, we know that ultimately his response leads to the healing both of the woman and to both, uh, to both the woman and of the little girl. Uh, who kind of is the third party in the story, and we may reference her just a little bit in the end. But, but so this, this is the story. These are the people. This is their problem. And this is kind of this peculiar way that Jesus responds. So then practically, why? Why in the world does Jesus seem to not care about Jairus' problem? Why in the world is he more concerned about this destitute person who didn't have any interest, came up behind him, superstition, etc.? What's going on here? Well, I've got four things to give to you this morning, and then we're going to be done. The first practical thing that I think you should learn from this. As we have already seen, Jesus is attracted to the most outcast and downtrodden. We just saw last week that he's willing to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to a place of wickedness and filth and pigs and death to deliver from the, from the devil, to deliver from the enemy, to deliver from sickness. He is willing to go to the other side of the tracks, so to speak. Listen, Jesus does not respond to us based on our social standing or wealth or power or payment. One of the problems with, with our unwillingness to wait when Jesus is causing and forcing us to wait and our one of the reasons for our lack of patience with his working and his moving and his doing is because of our own selfish and arrogant sense of entitlement. That because I'm somebody, how dare Jesus not do what I need him to do? What does he think he's doing not meeting my need? Why is he tarrying so long? Well, this story, if no other story, placed out of chronological order with a story sandwiched within a story. What is, what is the Holy Spirit trying to teach us in this text? To understand that Jesus doesn't care what you have to offer because it's nothing to him. That he's interested in the downtrodden and in the broken. I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-29. Listen to what Paul says. For you see your calling, brothers that not many wise according to the flesh, that not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. Why does God orchestrate His divine working this way? That he's interested in meeting the needs of those that have nothing to offer so that he can be the one to receive the glory. So that he can be the one to receive the glory. So first, that he is attracted to the most outcast and downtrodden. Secondly, from this passage and from these people and from their problems, I want you to understand that Jesus wants more for them and then consequently for us. 
He wants more for them than physical comfort. His main purpose in both of these stories is not to heal their affliction. What is his purpose? Why does he tarry with Jairus the way that he does? Why does he take time to deal with this insignificant, destitute woman the way that he does? Why does he let the little girl die and cause such confusion among the people that are following him? What is his purpose? Well, I think you see it down in verse 36 when he turns to Jairus after they get to the house with all of the professional mourners who were present and the wailing that would have been taking place. And he says to them, do not be afraid, only believe. What's his point? What's his purpose? Why does, why does he so often want and force us to wait and seem to not care? Because he is trying to test our faith and to teach us to not be afraid, but to believe. What does he look to the woman? The woman comes with superstition. She simply wants to touch him. What does he say to her? Woman, it is your faith that has healed you. It's your faith. What's the point of this passage? It is to help them understand and to grow in their belief. To help them understand and to grow in their belief. He wants their trust to be an informed trust. Because it is only when we are informed in our faith and our faith is grown that we end up being transformed. Think about what Jairus learned in this. Think about what the woman learned. Now, I told you just a minute ago, which is going to be my next point. He's going to give us more than we seek, so I don't want to give that away. But think about what they learned. If Jesus, if Jairus had come to Jesus and Jesus would have run at Jairus back and call, what would you, Jairus probably have thought? We don't know this, but speculate with me. That it would have been because of something about him. That I'm so important that all of these other people, the throngs that sought after Jesus, that they could all wait because my daughter needed help. I mean, that's just one of the many things. Think about what the woman learned. She learned that it had anything to do with touching his robe. It had everything to do with the fact that she trusted him and that she believed in him. What he's trying to get them to see is the same thing that I told you two weeks ago when we were studying about the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Remember, they thought the same thing when Jesus was sleeping in the boat. Lord, why do you not care? Why have you forgotten about us? If you really cared about us, you would not let this storm kill us. And Jesus is trying to get them to see, you are no more safe now that I have calmed the storm than when the sea was raging. See, the kingdom of God is a safe place. And we're learning about the safety of the kingdom. That if we are with Jesus, no matter how, no matter how turbulent the storm is, we are safe. Amen. And it's what we don't know. And it's what we don't believe. Jairus did not understand that he, his daughter was just as safe in death. But safer in death with Jesus than she was in life with her daddy. He didn't get it. The woman didn't get it. And he did not want, if, if he had simply run off and let the woman go her way, she would have run off and never been changed by the truth of the gospel. You know why? Because she would have just thought that all you had to do was touch his garment. That it was about her action of touching. That it was because of something that she did. This superstitious understanding. But Jesus is going to take the, in Jesus' mind, I think the immediate need was not death. He could, he could heal her or he could raise her just as easily, right? It made no difference to Jesus. There was no hurry to get to Jairus' daughter, but he wasn't going to miss an opportunity to inform the mind of a believing child. 
this, this woman who sought him out that didn't understand the nature of her belief, and he wanted to take her aside and teach her the truth of the gospel. That woman, it's not because you touched my robe, it's because you believe in me. Do, do, you, see, do you see for Jesus the immediate need? So he's attracted to the most outcast and the downtrodden. Secondly, he wants more for their, them than physical comfort. It is not his main purpose. His main purpose is to teach them to trust, to trust him that they're safe. Thirdly, what can we learn from this? Why does he do it this way? Well, as I've I've mentioned, and here we go, because when he finally comes, if we will only trust him and wait patiently, he is going to give us more than we ever could have sought. It may cost you more, but listen very carefully. When we do not understand the workings and the plan of Jesus, our Savior, It's because he's doing more in and for us than we intend him to do for ourselves. Think about Jairus. What did Jairus seek Jesus for? A healing. It was difficult. It was confusing. And it was probably depressing in Jairus' mind up until the point that what did he receive? He received a resurrection. I'll take the resurrection over the healing. I don't know about you. Can you imagine seeing someone raised from the dead? What an expression of the power of God. And had Jesus not waited, there would have been no resurrection. He would have gone and healed just like he had done many times before. And so Jairus gets a greater expression of the power of Christ than he ever could have asked for. Think about the woman. All she wanted was to continue in her superstitious belief. And she she was given an encounter with the Almighty. She didn't really want to talk to him. She was maybe terrified of him. She just knew that he was so powerful. She didn't want to mess with him. She just wanted to receive a little bit of something from him, get a little power, be healed, and be made better. And Jesus stops and seeks her out in his divine knowledge and forces her to be known in a public sense. Guess what? Everybody would have seen him dealing with her. He pushes her out into the public. And he has this intimate interaction with this woman. Why? To teach her about faith. To teach her about himself. To show her that while nobody else in her society cared about her, he did. Not just that her bleeding was stopped, but that she would be transformed. They both got got way more than they bargained for. She was brought from superstitious faith to life-transforming faith. What great hope this would have been for these people in this passage, and what great hope it should be for us. Tim Keller says it this way, if Jesus has her by the hand, this is what he's trying to teach her, talking about Jairus and the daughter. What's he wanting? When he looks, he says, do not be afraid. Only believe. Remember, Jesus goes and he takes the little girl by the hand and he uses the language of a mother. We miss it because it's it's not in in, in English when it's originally written. He He takes the little girl by the hand and he uses the language of a mother, a pet name of a mother in the morning when the sun is coming up to say, it's time to get up, it's time to get up out of your bed. The most safe place for a child to be in the hand and in the care of their parents and their mother. And, 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 and he is taking her by the hand and he is telling Jairus uh, that even in death, she is safe with me. That, that if I have her by the hand, that death is meant for her blessing. He wants to teach Jairus the lesson uh, you know, that I, I said uh, that we saw just a few weeks ago, that, that she is safe with him. That there is no storm or sickness that he can't handle and that not even death itself can threaten his children. So they get a lot more than they bargained for. But then finally, um, and, and we're going to close with this, 
These three things are true, but maybe the most significant and maybe the most difficult for us to understand. Fourthly and finally, we learn from this passage that Jesus' timing is not our timing. There are lives and situations all across this room where you can immediately call to your mind right now, why is Jesus doing or not doing whatever he's doing or not doing? Why does he wait? Why doesn't he answer? Why doesn't he deliver? Why doesn't he change? Well, I, I, I can't tell you that I know. Uh, those things rest in the providence of a sovereign, loving God for his people. But I do know a few things. I know that at least in our waiting, he is teaching us. The greatest trials in life, the periods of most painful waiting, are generally the periods of most significant growing and learning. I know that when I look back at my own life, and I think about the times that I have had to labor and struggle to trust Jesus, not understanding what he was doing or what he was not doing, that when I look back on those things after he finally answers and he finally moves, I say, man, how much did I learn about Jesus during that time? See, the the periods of most difficult waiting or often and generally and usually the periods of most intense learning and growing. But it's not just learning. There are also the periods where we learn what we really need. Just a simple question. Aren't you glad that Jesus has not always answered your questions and your requests immediately? When I look back in my life, not only do I see the periods of most intense waiting and difficulty and waiting on God to move and to do and to answer the things that I thought I needed him to do, one of the things that I am forced to realize is how grateful I am that he did not answer it. What it shows us is that some of the things that we think we need the most are the things we need the least. That our most sincere requests are often the stupidest. What's he, what's he teaching us? That he sees better than we see. That he knows better than we know. And that if we will just let him go and do and trust him to do it, that it will be better in the end for our sakes and for his glory than we could have ever imagined. I heard a pastor put it this way. Jesus is not saying in this passage to Jairus, I'm not going to be hurried, but I love you anyway. Listen, Jesus is saying to Jairus, I am not going to be hurried because I love you and I know what I'm doing. Because of all the things that came in Jairus' waiting. That that had Jesus not forced him to wait and go through that difficult season of his life. And the death of his daughter in the morning that followed. Had Jairus not gone through those things, he would not have known and come to know what he came to know about Jesus. See, Jesus isn't telling us, you are waiting, but I love you anyway. And I'm not going to be hurried by you, but I love you anyway. He's saying, I love you too much to be hurried by you because you don't get it. Because you don't know what's best, and I do. He's saying, I've got it under control, if you'll just trust me. So let me encourage you this morning, in the midst of your waiting on Christ, that he knows what he's doing, and also that he's been there too. See, Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he has not already done. Were it not for the great patience of Jesus, there would be no salvation for his people. On the road to the very cross that saves us, Jesus was forced to wait and to endure. He says in the Garden of Gethsemane to his father, Father, 
If there is any other way but the cross, can we please do it that way? And what was God's response? No, you must walk through this valley. You must drink this cup. It is the only way for it to be done. What great patience and what great trust he exhibits. So he's, he's asking us to do something not only because of what it will teach us and because of what he will ultimately bring to us, but because he has been there before and he understands our problem. I don't know uh, what the answer of this morning is for you and your waiting. I, I do not claim to know why God is doing what he's doing in your life and in your family and in your suffering. I don't know. Why that in such great sickness and suffering and trials, why you are still pleading with Christ and not getting the answer that you seek. But what I can tell you this morning is it is because he loves you that he makes you wait. And if you will trust him and if you will wait patiently on him, you will not be disappointed with the results that he brings. He will do more, not only that you than you asked, but he will do more than you could have asked, that you could have even thought to request. Let us trust in the, the Lord this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you um, that in your providence, though it is incredibly difficult for us at times, Lord, thank you that you make us wait and that you do not always give us the things that we ask for immediately that you love us too much to simply do what we think we need and you force us to wait to receive what you know we need. We pray for two things this morning. We pray very simply that in the midst of our great sufferings and trials and difficulties, as we bring our petitions to you and as we ask you for the things that we think we need, that you would help us by your grace to wait, that you would give us patience that you would give us a, a heavenly mindset to see that your, that your perspective on our lives is better than our own. So we pray first that you would help us to wait. But Lord, we pray also that when you do act and when you do move and when you do answer, Lord, we pray that it would blow our minds, that we would wait patiently, but that you would move miraculously and that you would do in and for us what you know we need, ultimately for your glory and also for our good. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.